Hello and welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Wherever you are, isolated, quarantined, socially distancing right now, we welcome you to the Religious Studies Project. Today, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, co-editor, co-everything for this project. Introduce yourself now. Oh, Brie Fallon. And of course, you are David McConaughey. I am. Sometimes. Occasionally. Most of the time, I think. Right now, it's hard to tell because all the days are just blending together. Yeah. I mean, who who even are we anymore? We're just, you know, living moment by moment, trying to get some sunshine where you can. It, but as if long I as- have not sat in my automobile on the way to work, have I really lived today? That's right. That's right. The greater question is, if you haven't listened to our podcast, have you really lived? That's a better question. Yeah. And what what are they going to listen to today? I think I did something, didn't I? You did. You did. Um, David, you interviewed Arlene Sanchez-Walsh on boxing and religious identity. So take it away. My name is David McConaughey, and today I'm joined by Dr. Arlene Sanchez-Walsh, professor of religious studies and the author of the award-winning book, Latino Pentecostal Identity, Evangelical Faith, Self, and Society. She's the author of more than a dozen articles and book chapters on the subject of Latino Pentecostalism and has served as a media expert for outlets such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, On Being, and PBS's series God in America. Her current writing projects include a textbook on Pentecostalism in America, that's out now, is it not? And a monograph on Latinos and the prosperity gospel. Today, she's joining us to talk about boxing and its relationship to religion. Arlene, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome. Thanks a lot. So your interest in boxing is is personal. You're a huge fan of boxing. For, for those of our listeners that may not be boxing fans, let's bring them in through through the means of culture. Can you tell me a boxing movie that maybe is one of the kind of real standards for you where it really expresses some of uh, what you feel the sport really has to offer to people and why it's interesting to you? Well, one of my favorite movies is uh, Million Dollar Baby, the Clint Eastwood mm. movie from a few years ago. And not so much because it's Clint Eastwood, but probably because of Hilary Swank's performance, which I thought was great. So one of the things I got from that movie, I guess, is kind of how stereotypical it is, but how how it demonstrates how boxing is all-encompassing for those who decide to become part of the sport. It is life or death. Right. And for those of your listeners who haven't watched the movie, I won't get into it aside from that, but it really is, it becomes a person's identity. This is what they do now. They box. Right. And very few people leave the sport who are totally committed to it or who view it as the way out of whatever Mm. um, trap they may find themselves in. Boxing really is a sport of the underclass. Right. I mean, it didn't start that way. I know it didn't. Uh, you know, its roots are in, are in England, gentlemen's clubs, things like that. And kind of like a, a noble sport to kind of demonstrate your virility and your manhood and all things like that. The Million Dollar Baby, because it focuses on a female, uh, a poor white woman from um, some part of the U.S. where there was no other ladder up. Um, it's really quite an amazing movie for that, uh, for that portrayal. I, I love the way that you describe 
boxing in a way that makes it sound, even from the outset here, religion, that it's all-consuming, that it becomes the central component of your identity. Why do you think boxing as a sport is like that? Can can Do we say the same thing about uh, basketball? Do we say the same thing about baseball or about football, that they're as, as consuming? Is this something that's to be said about all sports, or is there some uh, special things we might point to about boxing that really um, separates it. Well, what I think is quite amazing from it is that it's a it's a singular sport, right? There's one person does it. One person takes their life into their hands every time they enter the ring. The some of the sports you described there are team sports, right? So if you're unless you're a star and you really really stand out, you're just part of a squad in football, a very large squad, right? Where there's multiple orders of players and and Sometimes you may never get to play, right? You just be on the lines for for years on end. Uh, Baseball, the same thing. Boxing is something that you decide. Don't take training uh, for it, really. I mean, I guess you can still box in the military. You can box in some colleges. Mm. uh, But I think, by and large, this is something you take on usually as a young person. And you train with one person, usually. And you make a decision that this is going to be something that will get you out of a, of a particular circumstance. Um, right. That's, I think, what's unique about it. And it's all consuming because it, it you need to brand yourself in order to become successful. You need to become something mm. to a following. That's how you develop boxing. Uh, that's how you market yourself, if you will. So that's how you're going to sell tickets. That's how you're going to market yourself. That's how you're going to brand boxing gloves, things like that. You become part of the the fabric of the boxing lore, right? Mike Tyson came in, did not wear the fancy stuff. He came in with like a black kind of a cape, if you will. And that's all he wore. And he took it off. There was no flash, but he was for his day, the most incredible boxer, the most incredible power, even though he's, and, but also fit into that mold of boxing as a way out, boxing as a way out. Right. So, I'm I'm curious about whether in today's era uh, we've seen the rise of um, UFC and uh, mixed martial arts MMA uh, globally, whether now boxing has so many more avenues for its um, its athletes to brand themselves that it really creates what was endemic before, right? That that perhaps in the past that was something that was um, important to have, but there was all these other kind of um, promoters and facilities and big organizations. And now there are all these media channels to really come through and, and self brand. Is, is that something that you perceive as well? That, that when you follow the sport today, you're following social media profiles and, and the, that element of entertainment as well as what happens in the ring. Cause what happens in the ring may only last 10 minutes, half an hour. Yes. Right? Uh, the branding uh, has gone by the way of social media. All, also these conglomerates where successful boxers uh, now manage kind of a stable of boxers. They also make contracts with mm-hmm. uh, stations, uh, cable stations or streaming services. Some of them stream their own boxing. They've, they've kind of their own boxing right. groups. Right. And so if you if you sign with a particular manager, the exclusive rights go to another particular 
uh, it used to be HBO. Now it's all over the place. There's uh, there's several places you can watch boxing. Um, and I guess the people who I follow on Twitter, for example, who are real boxing fans, who know much, much more about the history and follow every single rank in terms of weight uh, the weight ranks, which I don't. <laughs> but um, they're, they're always kind of kind of gleefully saying, well, this is the year boxing is going to die because boxing is always on its deathbed. You know, mm. it is brutal. Uh, many people would say it's the racial component is deeply troubling to people. The fact that the many of these men and women come from particular social classes, which um, essentially, why would you view this as the only way out, which is a sport that could kill you, right? The, the corruption, the perceived corruption right. of it and the historically the corruption of boxing. Right with fixed fights and and terrible uh, referees and terrible scoring and things like that. So it's mm. it's an it's interesting that the sport hasn't died, uh, and I don't know why. Even with UFC, even with MMA, even with uh, uh, just yesterday, somebody who I followed on Twitter who won a bronze medal at the last Olympics has decided to go bare knuckles, which is yeah. So I don't know if he's again. Uh, boxing is not a good avenue for him. Maybe his weight class is not something that's particularly competitive. Maybe he can't find a manager. Not sure. Uh, but um, he's decided to go this route because it's probably better for him. It's a better money deal. It's a better deal for him, uh, maybe health-wise, right? So you, you, you never know. You never know. But but boxing is interesting in that it's durable, and I'm not quite sure why. It's just very, very durable sport. One of the things that that struck me in in the the drafts of the work that you shared with me about boxing was the way in which the racial identities and the ethnic communities that support individual boxers are so much a part of their self brand. I, I wonder if there's a connection there between the durability of the communities that support this activity. And as we pivot to talking more about the way that religion gets into it, I, I think you, you actually are answering your own question in a way that I hope to share with our, our listeners in a moment. So can you talk a little bit about the way boxing has has been racialized, has been a, a, an element in uh, communities of color and ethnic communities. Can well, you sure. talk about that? Well, for historically, briefly, the, um, the fight uh, would come through immigrant communities. Uh, so Jewish boxers, Irish boxers, Italian boxers, all of those were big, big hits in the turn of the century, the 20s, 30s. And it's it's really interesting how that has filtered down through more racialized groups today um, where you had uh, large communities of uh, followers who would follow, let's just say Joe Lewis and then would follow Sugar Ray Robinson. So in the African-American communities, uh, boxers were heroes. And so bringing it through to today, um, the myriad of boxing is, is uh, rooted in all kinds of uh, Latino, Latina identities, uh, Colombian, Puerto Rican, Mexican, which is huge, huge, huge in the boxing community. So those type of um, those type of identities are important because it's uh, it's something to to hold on to. I guess you know. I mean, when when you're kind of uh, forced, if you will, through to undergo various processes, and I guess 
of Americanization, of assimilation. Boxing's durability in terms of ethnicity is because those people proudly wear flags. They they tattoo themselves. Uh, they mark mm. themselves as coming not just from a particular at nationality, but from a particular place, you know, from uh, Michoacan, from Sinaloa, from um, Chicago, from uh, Imperial Valley, California. They mark themselves as coming from that place, and it um, it's a mark of pride where you don't really get to, you know, fly the flag too much, <laughs> particularly in this era. You don't really get to uh, promote yourself as proudly Mexican American, proudly Puerto Rican. It's it's uh, become kind of a dangerous thing to kind of get out there and say that you are something other than a white American. Hmm. And, and so th- this is this is a very public stage then for th- for the performance of racial identity for the acceptance of a, a community and for the projection of that brand um, to a community that's actively watching. Uh, I, it, it's not no surprise to me that boxing would retain its power in that way. What does, what does religion have to do with it then? If, if these communities are self-branding in racial ways, how, how do we then talk about the way in which they're also bringing their religious identities? Well, they, they mark themselves with it. I don't, I can't think of a boxer who dons tattoos, for example, that doesn't have some kind of praying hands, right. uh, and large tattoos of uh, La Virgen de Guadalupe, um, large um, mm-hmm. crosses, rosaries, um, and in African-American boxing communities, for example, you might get something like uh, scripture phrases, scriptural passages that are tattooed. That's very common, not only in boxing, but among many other African-American sports figures who choose to tattoo themselves with scriptures, which I think would obviously harken back to the, the idea that most black athletes have some familiarity with Protestantism. So that the, the, their interest in scripture would make sense. For Latino boxers who are predominantly have some kind of Catholic background, uh, the idea of tattooing yourself with this material culture, with the rosaries, with Virgin Mary, with with things of that nature, that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, and uh, the other boxers that I've followed for the, the piece that you're mentioning, um, the conversion narrative plays a huge part in this, is that what saved you either through boxing, after boxing, or while you're boxing, is some kind of religious component, something about religion. Either you became something else, you started to follow it much more fervently, or in the case of the female boxer who I mentioned in the piece, you kind of self-actualize, if you will. You become kind of uh, an advocate of this transpersonal psychology, you know, self-help, um, things of that nature, which are which is quite different. But what I argue in my piece is very much part of the same kind of religious identity, only she marked herself differently. She never marked herself as a Catholic, even though she was raised Catholic. Um, She really wants to mark herself as, if you will, a a much more self-actualized modern Latina woman um, who is kind of moving away from the traditional bounds of religion, of Catholicism, of Protestantism, to, I guess, uh, I don't know what we would call it, to go back to the old book, um, you know, I, I don't remember Sheilaism, right? <laughs> I 
right? I believe in I believe in Sheilaism. Mm. So she <laughs> believes in herself and her ability right. through through all of these um, right. self help processes to make herself better, to come out of something. Boxing isn't it is a part of that, but it is not the, the sole part of her work. Right. The the boxer you're speaking about is uh, is Mia St. John. Correct. Yeah. And she won her third championship in, in 2012. And, and one of the things th- that struck me about the way that you spoke about her is that uh, she ended up posing for um, an adult magazine uh, and, and she really took control of the sexualization of her own skin. We had just been talking about how the men mark themselves uh, in a kind of muscular Christian um, attitudes by tattooing themselves. And and then her claim, in contrast, you say, um, citing uh, Jennifer Hargreaves, that uh, she mm-hmm. was a potential surrogate, right, for, um, for those things. And then by investing the power in, in her own creation of those images, it really asserted her self brand as having control over the potential sexualization that was being reflected on her by the boxing community. Is, is this, is this typical? This sounds like boxing has such a, a visible, it's such a, a latent surface for the reflection of, of these symbols that we're seeing that it condenses everything down to a synecdoche that, that, that each person becomes representative of their race, of their gender, of their sexuality, of their religion. And it, and it makes a tableau that is on stage surrounded by the ropes, just two people for those 10 minutes. How can you not create the stories from it? No, right. That drama true. that is I mean, being created. You- you have such a way of saying these things. <laughs> I, love, I love everything you just said. And say, you well, know what? I, I'm, That's exactly I'm, what I meant to write. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I'm just riffing off of, of the, so the, the, the great draft of the essay that, that you sent to me. I'm so, I'm so excited um, I'm to I'm have read, read the early I, version I'm glad you of liked it. it. I'm glad you liked it. I obviously off the, when we get off this, uh, this uh, interview and love your comments, but uh, back to me at St. John, she's fascinating. She has her own personal drama. See the, the conversion kind of arc, right? Um, Difficult home life, absent father, single mom living in San Francisco, got involved in drugs, drinking, et cetera. Uh, Meant, you know, a lot of psychological problems, you know, mental illness, uh, depression, uh, but never talks about religion you know, in any of her narratives and things. She talks about how she's going to take charge of her sexuality in her book. Uh, I think she even has a couple of exercise tapes in a book about healthy eating. So again, that's another way to say, look, I can do it. You can do it. Uh, there's a there's a really uh, a deep sense in her that she can help Latinas, right? So that's, again, another very, very different part of kind of the boxing life, right? Is her stepping out and trying to become a more public figure, a more... Um, eating healthy, getting well, uh, meditating, things like that. And she's not comfortable talking about it in that way, but but to follow her on Twitter and to kind of look at her kind of public presentations, that's clearly what she's doing. And and she's near 50 now, uh, but, and, and she'll do, right. you know, matches for charity and things like that. But she's, you know, off the, 
she, she doesn't box professionally anymore, right? She's, you know, that, that, that will get dangerous after a while, <laughs> seriously dangerous to, to keep boxing at that age. Uh, but I think that's really interesting. And I, I, it was just something I was looking for to kind of match all of these stories together. This conversion arc is, is different, but it's not right. It's, it's coming out of something into something else. Only she's doing it on her own. And she's essentially taking charge of this because she didn't want it to be uh, taken advantage of. She knew that she was basically going to become, you know, for lack of a better word, meat for the grinder, right? And um, that I found most fascinating mm. uh, to to kind of look at her and to see how she managed her own career and how she managed her own persona. That happened with Johnny Tapia, another person who I talked to, uh, or I'm sorry, who I wrote about, and. It's, it's really something how all of these stories kind of mesh in that they do. There's an all consuming nature to boxing, because as I think I, I quoted someone, someone who does a lot of work on the sociology of boxing and the sociology of sport, you could die. Right. I mean, it, there's not a lot of sports where you can do that. Now it's it's much more common to stay in football with the whole concussion thing and whatever. But you could literally you can make it can make or break you one match. Right. And so that's uh, that's not typical in sports. And I think that's enticing to people. It's adrenaline. No. It's enticing. And when you wrap yourself in, in a brand, um, it might be kind of you might equate it with something like. Uh, we don't really well, let's let's hope not. Right. We don't really go to war anymore. Right. We don't wrap ourselves in flags and get on fields and go mm. fighting. You know, that's not the way we do that. War is not that way anymore. Yeah, at least not in, you know, the first world, you know, but it's, it's interesting that that's how boxing has been equated, right? That it's Ireland versus Mexico. It's Puerto Rico versus this it's very, it's substituted for this kind of interesting kind of nationalism that I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a proxy for it. It's, it's a proxy for it, right? It, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's high stakes for the two people that are participating and, and low stakes for everybody else. And, and so you can invest your emotion in the stakes for the person that you're supporting, right? Like this, this past weekend, um, everyone in the state where I live, Massachusetts was heartbroken when the Patriots lost. And, and for all of them, um, that emotional investment that they had in the team and that they've had in the team in the past, the letdown that they have when they lose uh, is a, is a personal loss. But my wife, who's a charity fundraiser and for whom um, football charity events mm -hmm. connected to the Super Bowl are important. <laughs> it, it actually had a huge, a, a huge, oh, yeah. they, they now oh, are predicting oh, revenue <laughs> loss, right. From, from it. And, and, and I think, and I think that that speaks to the, to the ways in which, the perceived emotional drama that we might participate in can actually have some, some real impacts on these people, not only personal health wise, right? If you take one more fight to cash out, but then you are injured severely and that's a movie narrative again and again, yes, it you is. see, it is. but that, but that's I mean, the risk, um, right? Just looking at Johnny Tapia's career, uh, again, the, the conversion arc, terrible, terrible childhood, heavy amounts of violence. I mean, just, the I just can't imagine coming from such a background to 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 put yourself together to do anything. I mean, without lots of therapy, you know, and lots of um, lots of other kind of things that maybe he doesn't have access to. 
uh, or he didn't have access to because, you know, child rear in poverty and, and that uh, fell into crime, things of that nature. And then he decides, I'm going to become a boxer, right? And so he becomes a boxer. He becomes completely invested in being New Mexico, that he's from Albuquerque. He, is, he um, symbolizes that place, right? And there's a, there's a statue of Johnny Tapio. There, there are things that are, there are centers that are going to be built in his name. And does he deserve that? I guess that's a, that's an interesting question of like how what happens to you after boxing, right? Um, after boxing, despite all right. of the problems that you had, and he had a lot of problems. He was in and out of jail most of his life. Um, the fact that they're not really right. many of these folks are not really great moral heroes doesn't matter, right? Because boxing is all that matters, right? The fact that you you took on our name. You took on the name place of where we're from. You came out from nothing, from the barrio, from the neighborhood, and you made something of yourself, right? That's um, only boxing has that kind of, well, I don't say only boxing, but boxing is one of the few avenues where your previous life is really erased or made uh, heroic um, as something that you overcame, that you were, that you overcame. Right. And and that's the foundation of, of the personal myth that is at the heart of the self brand. It, it, cu- it cuts across um, economic um, troubles. It cuts across uh, family home troubles. It cuts across uh, troubles with drugs because uh, you can, you can mark them as the foundation as the base. And then what did we build up through? We built up through hard work. We built up through sport and we built up, as you argue, through religious conversion. Can, can you speak a little bit about the ways in which the dynamic of the public expression of religion and the private expression of religion and work for this? Because you say that for someone like me, St. John, that while she has a, a variety of public activities, the, the public expression of her religiousness is very muted. Whereas for many of the other figures that, that we could talk about, their religious expression is much more public and much more visibly um, categorized or designated that we can trace it to a particular denomination or to a particular oh, no, church. No, no, even. not a problem. Um, Let me yeah. uh, dovetail both of these together. There's very little evidence, aside from if you talk to the family, that Johnny Tapia, for example, made a conversion statement or, or made a conversion story. I, I looked and looked mm. and looked and looked, and I, it was very hard to find. But in the some of the literature, it was like that he had had a born-again experience. They kind of use that, that expression. And I looked for it because usually folks who become uh, evangelical, let's just say, they're not shy about it. Right. I mean, they will talk about it. Their their families will talk about it. There'll mm-hmm. be something. There'll be something somewhere like the um, the tapes that I saw on YouTube about a, a former boxer uh, attending an evangelical service in Puerto Rico, for example. I could find nothing on Johnny Tapio. Mia St. John's, mm. I think why there's no public expression. The public expression really is in the psychological self-help, her foundation, um, the fact that she wants to help. Latinas, mm-hmm. young girls with self-esteem and that uh, that's part of it. And, and I guess you could kind of put it in that whole kind of, I don't know, I want to say 70s self-help, self-actualization mode where you talk about, I am a good person. I can be whatever I sure. want to be. 
I can do whatever I want to do, completely divorced from mm-hmm. any kind of traditional religious um, denomination that I know of, right? It's just simply you. You can do it if you want to, right? You can do it if you if you believe in yourself, right? So they, you have all of these kind of pat phrases. And that's kind of what she uses. I mean, I, I again, I, d- I dug, I dug, I dug. I couldn't find any kind of deeper root to any any kind of religious or, or traditional religious denomination movement. It simply was a belief of hers that she did this on her own through hard again hard work, keeping her body, keeping you know you- psychology. I think if anything, her religion is psychology, right? Is that that helped her? That treatment helped her. Um, so I don't know if you can have a public expression of that aside from what she does, right? Her, her charity work, her work with uh, art therapy, her work for kids, her work, uh, in trying to help, uh, people with mental illness because her, her, her son, uh, has a tragic story. He, he was schizophrenic and he, he committed suicide under watch at a local facility. So she, that's one of her causes now. Is the form of those type of situations because she she's right. a, a believer that um, psychology would have helped him, right? That that uh, this kind of again self actualized personal psychology, not the institutional stuff, because that I think she blames for her son's death. Hmm. I I wonder if if in the framing of this, and I'm and I'm hearing you you make a move where we have a space, the, the, the space of, of religious expression of psychological principles, maybe of, you know, uh, uh, the descendants of the self affirmation and Norman Vincent Peale and, um, uh, this kind of movement. And I wonder whether part of, of the advantage that someone like me and St. John has today is that those expressions are, are available to her that can, can you, let me ask the, the negative. Can you imagine that 50 years ago that she could have had that particular identity, Boxer. that brand yeah. as, as a boxer? Right. I can, I can see no, it today, right? Exactly but, right. If I, I think, but if I go um, back in time, well, that's why I think I put her at the end. Right. I mean, I tried to at least draw this little arc, right. Mm. From the very traditional conversion narrative, which you've heard a hundred times, which would not really interest readers too much. They would kind of go, oh, of course we've seen this to her and then kind of trying to make the argument that this is in many ways, the same thing, but in many ways it's not right. Because it's her, right. She essentially has divorced herself and her success for, to any particular kind of conversion narrative. It's like, I started here. I had a crisis moment. I had a come to Jesus moment, you know, quote unquote. And now I'm living this different life because of that. Hers is it's very no, and fifty years ago, no. I mean, right. fifty years ago, she wouldn't have been boxing, right? But even if she had, it would be a joke. And, no, no, right? They would there, not, they, no, they, no permission she, to box. Been, right? Kind of what it is today. It's a it's a subset, right? It's an exhibition, right? I think the exhibitionism is uh, still there, mm. right? I mean, it's kind of fascinated by by female fighters because of how they look and, and, you know, when they get beat up, it just looks horrible. Right. I mean, not that, not that men getting beat up is any, is, I think you're used to it. 
right? There's something about being used to seeing bloodied bodies for boxers mm. being male, bloodied, you know, uh, bodies for women. It's, it's whatever it is in our psyche, much more distasteful, right? But you don't think of her that way. If you think of her at all, she is mm. fit. She is trim. She looks fantastic for near 50, you know? And I think it's part of that whole thing of, I did this myself with a lot of help, with a lot of therapy, and uh, you can too, right? And again, never kind of digging it into a Catholic background, nothing like that. It's, it's really interesting how she's managed to do that. I, I, I wonder if when we're talking about the self brand and the personal myth, whether the affiliation with an organization, a specific organization uh, of religion, a, a particular church or a particular domination, whether that's mm-hmm. actually a riskier move for the, for the self marketing of, of these boxers today. You know, if you were Catholic and you were boxing out of a community, you might have to field a lot of the blowback against Catholics for, you know, the sex abuse crisis. If you were, you know, a member of prosperity church, you could get abuse for not having given back enough to the community or for having not tithed enough that there, that it comes with all of these like strings that are attached. And the thing that I think you've emphasized is how much these folks are self-made. And if you're self-made and you tie yourself to, to these deep rooted organizations, then maybe you, you lose out, some elements of what could make your brand that's, really that's a good yours point. to own also, too, and shape. Is that the way they tie themselves to religion, and we, or, you know, you could disagree disagree with me or not, or, or amplify it because you you know this much better than I do. The idea that there's a popular and an institutional religion, right? Uh, the popular religion they completely envelop themselves mm. in. Uh, with the marking of their bodies and the discussing of certain things, if they are for evangelical boxes, for example, will gladly grant you interviews to talk to people. They'll right. talk to their pastors, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's the the conversion mythology is look at how great they are now, right? Same thing with African American boxers who become Muslim, right? Which is a completely mm. different topic. I understand that, but uh, the the couple of boxers who were Latino who converted to Islam. Uh, very interesting stories there too. I didn't have time to put them in there. It was there was not a lot of material, sadly, uh, so I had to leave them out. But that's a, a subset that's even very mm. much more interesting to me, honestly, because how you navigate that being Latino and being Muslim in the ring, right? It's very very different than being a Muslim and African American in the ring, right? Um, but again, I think it's the right the popular. Versus the institutional. Uh, I don't know a lot of Catholic boxers who want to have pictures of them taking taking communion, right? They they want the the tattoos, right? Mm. And the, the the they they cross themselves before they start fighting, right. right? That is basically the symbol of their public Catholicism, um, and not to say that that's not as far as they go, but mm. that often is as far as they go. Aside from charity events and giving money to various organizations, there's just not a lot of deeply embedded institutional follow through with at least the boxers that I, that I followed. Um, There might be with others, but this is really much more just for a persona. The idea that this is what is expected of me. It's expected that I cross myself, that I have some kind of um, mark of protection 
right? The rosaries and the virgin, all those are protective amulets, if you want to say that, right? That's what that's for, right? It's not, it's not a symbol of look at how Catholic I am or look at my conversion. It's you put this on to protect yourself in, in a, uh, a Latino popular Catholic context. That's why you carry these items. That's why you put them on. That's why you, you have tattoos. Okay. You do them to at least one of the major reasons you put, you use that and you mark your body that way is for protection. I'm, I'm so taken with that idea. That's such an interesting read of, of crosses and rosaries on, on the body. As, as we wrap up our time here today, um, I just wanted to talk about uh, the poem um, that yeah, you yeah. use well, that was written by um, a boxer named Gonzalez. Uh, and, and it's a, and it's a very famous poem. Um, uh, Yo soy de la queen. And, I I I have to confess that I'd never read that poem before, and I I was stunned. It was such um, uh, such a wonderful piece of prose, uh, and you and you end with it with the summary here and see part of me who rejects my father and my mother and dissolves mm-hmm. into the melting mm-hmm. pot to disappear in shame. And I just wondered whether. We we think of boxing as such a physical sport, but in but in that moment at the at the end of your piece, when you're when you're creating a kind of evocative moment there, I wonder whether there's a a poetic side to all of this that that is really revealed in the product of a boxer who is then reflecting on the racial components of their boxing at the you know during their career as they transition. Yeah, sure. Out well, Corky Gonzalez is a, is a unique case, as Can I'm sure. You, you read in the piece and uh, I'm glad you read it. It's a very famous poem. I'm glad that uh, it's getting exposure. Um, Corky uh, had some idea of who he was, right? He was an activist. He, he left boxing fairly early. Uh, so he didn't experience the downfall of a boxer, which is often sadly a lot of physical problems, uh, dementia mm. later on Parkinson's as Muhammad Ali had, those type of things because of just the, the sheer volume of hits you take to the head, uh, which is pretty constant over several years, and it, it, it can't do anything but damage you. So he left early on. Um, so the, the poetry involved, I think you can flash it out to, to most boxers, right, is that they, they kind of know who they are. There's, there's a sense about them that they understand who they are. They know that. Uh, they can be flashes in the pan that I'm a hero one day, I'm, I'm going to be uh, in a parade, they're going to welcome me as a hero, I'm the champion, and then you lose and you're nothing, <laughs> right? And, and most of us do not like to live our life that way, at least we don't like to think about it mm. that way. Just the idea that not only is my physical body melted away, but my identity somehow is melted away. I'm forgotten, right? And Corky was talking about in that piece, assimilation. Right. Right. He was talking about the loss of a Chicano identity, which is very specific, as you know, right. to a time period, right? To the late 60s, early mm-hmm. 70s, particularly. And so it's it's marked by those by those boundaries of being a part of that time. But I think you can, again, uh, expand the, the view and say, I think a lot of Latino boxers, particularly in African-American boxers as well, have this idea that they, they're only as good as their fight, right? And, and who are they beyond that? 
So I think that's what Corky was getting at, is that who am I beyond this, right? I am nothing because everything's been taken away from me. So, yeah, it's pretty poignant. It's pretty poignant. It's uh, And you know what? But I don't think boxers would have it any other way. I don't think anybody is out there saying, God, you should join this sport. It's great. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's not a there's not a positive spin to boxing. <laughs> it's, simply, it's, it's something that you take on, really, if you don't have a lot of options. You know? Hmm. Well, it's been so wonderful to speak with you today. I'm so thankful for a chance to think about something that I don't usually get to think of. And and I hope that you'll return to share more thoughts about it uh, in the future. So thank you again, Dr. Sanchez Walsh. I was so thankful that Arlene shared her essay in progress with me about boxing and religious identity there are so many things to talk about. Sports and religion is really a thriving area, a subfield within religious studies. And boxing in particular has amazing racial and class and identity components to it that make it just so interesting to look at. And for those of us that don't really follow boxing, and Brie and I talked about it before, and she's not a huge um, boxing enthusiast uh, herself. One of our entry points, as I introduced the podcast episode with um, Arlene, was uh, through film. So, so Bree, is that is that you? Would you say that that's your main entry point for boxing? Is popular culture film? Oh, definitely. I mean, when we were speaking beforehand, the amount of boxing films you can rattle off without, I mean, I've never even seen one. People will be shocked I've never even seen Rocky. I think that's a boxing film. Um, But you could just rattle them off. And even you asked me, you know, what's Australian boxing culture like? And, you know, I could name boxers because they were, you know, on a TV show. And it's, I really thought there was an interesting moment in the podcast where um, Arlene brought up Mia St. John and the narrative that she had created as part of her boxing career as sort of this modern Latino woman. And when I think about boxing films and think about Mia St. John, the concept of the narrative in boxing is so central. Who is this person? What background have they come from? What what ethnic group? What class? And it just creates so much of their character. It isn't just about the sport. It's so fund- fundamentally about them as a person as well. I think that's one of the things that that when I get invested in sports, and sports for me is not every season for my home team. Sometimes I'll, I'll have a few years where I don't follow a sport and then there'll be a season where something catches my eye and I'll watch many of the games. And I'm from Massachusetts. And so we've been blessed over the past few years with some um, very successful sports teams, but it's really those stories that draw me in and, and really good sports reporting and really good sports movies and really good scholarship on sports and religion takes advantage of the fact that part of what sports do for us is allow us to tell the stories of what it's like to be human. And and when we wear, as boxers do, our identity is literally inked into our skin. And when we're on display in such vulnerability uh, in front of a huge audience um, and measured against another person in such a physical way, that that is something that that is quite rare. And and I think we 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 all take advantage of the fact that that those are 
really compelling narratives and really compelling stories that a lot of us can empathize and and see ourselves uh, engaged with. I know I know in in Australia, um, you are all probably lamenting the loss of both rugby and and soccer. What's what sport should be going on in our COVID nineteen world right now for you that is not happening? I know for us, we're missing spring training for baseball. Um, which should be happening right now, um, but is not. So, so is rugby um, supposed to be happening right now and is not for you? Yes, we're supposed to have all sort of major forms of what we would call football, rugby league, rugby union, AFL. And um, they're actually talking about holding the games in empty empty stadiums at this stage. Um, If the team's quarantined beforehand for two weeks, they can meet and play so that the season can go ahead, which is largely actually an economic decision um, Mm -hmm. to ensure that the game actually survives. To be perfectly honest, it's not something that I follow. I'm more crushed that Wimbledon has been cancelled for 2020. Australia is a big tennis nation, um, but there is a lot of concern about the football. Yeah, I I think the longer that all of us are socially distancing, the more we will realize how embedded so many of these cultural systems are in our everyday lives in ways that that we don't really perceive. So so Wimbledon was huge for you and there's an entire network of people for that. I know that people are are crushed about uh golfing tournaments that mm. that, no, that normally go on in if universities are disrupted in the fall, both the American uh football uh, the the college league of football, the NCAA for basketball, will be interrupted, and these are not just huge revenue producers for schools, but they're but they're major cultural identity formations for the communities that surround the schools and their for their students and alumni. Um, it's going to be a, a really different fall if um, students are going to intermittently return to campus or uh, the return to campus is delayed because all of those sports might have to be canceled or um, have reduced seasons. And there's just no, we're, we're all without a map here right now on these things. That's right. But uh, speaking of important cultural formations, we have a Ooh. fabulous episode coming up next week. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about it, Dave? Yeah. So when we noticed that uh, the calendar Monday for the following episode, May the 4th, was on May the 4th, the Star Wars tingled. The Force got us. And we decided that since Star Wars had made several, not just several, more than half a dozen appearances across the the nearly 10 years of episodes here, that we would try to bring some of those together for you. And we're looking forward to sharing that with you um, next week. Uh, so until then, all that's left to say is thanks, thanks for, listening. for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. 
social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop, and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals. <laughs>